Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 82. Today, we're diving into the topic of mental health. It's a topic we've covered before on this program, like in episode 63 with Dale Bierman from Think Pacifica, and in episode 21 with Dr. Arshiv Vahabsida from BrainPower. In those episodes, we explored the use of mobile apps and wearables, and we looked at some of the problems that are being solved using those technologies. We often think of mental health as something that's just that. It's mental health. And the connection to physical health, and even the numbers of people who die due to poor mental health, are often underappreciated. We know that if we increase activity and physical exercise, it can help relieve symptoms of stress and improve aspects of our mental health. Now, wouldn't it be great if there were tools available that help to measure and quantify our mental health based on our physical activities and behaviors? Well, that's exactly why I wanted to introduce you to our next guest. His company is pioneering work in measurement science to produce continuous, objective measures of cognition and mood that can potentially alert patients and providers to early signs of mental health deterioration. My guest is Dr. Thomas R. Ensel. He's the co-founder and president of MindStrong Health based in California. Tom's here to tell us about the research and work they're doing to use information from cell phones to drive better, earlier, and deeper understandings about mental health. Tom's a psychiatrist and neuroscientist, and previously he was a director of the National Institute of Mental Health, a professor of psychiatry at Emory University, and a leader of Verily's mental health team. I was introduced to Tom by Marco Mowinkle and George Goldsmith over at Compass Pathways, which is a UK-based company that's working to develop treatments to empower patients who are suffering from mental illness. They're doing that by combining neuroscience, psychotherapy, psychopharmacology, and digital platforms. They're doing some amazing work. You can find out more by visiting compasspathways.com. And thanks to Marco and George for the introduction to Tom. As always, you can get the show notes and links to everything we discuss by visiting our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 82. And while you're there, please take a moment to subscribe to our newsletter and become a part of the Digital Health Today community. Now, without further ado, let's tune into the conversation with Dr. Tom Insel from MindStrong Health. Dr. Insel, let me start off by saying welcome to the program. Well, thanks, Dan. Delighted to be here. Dr. Insel, here on Digital Health Today, we love to talk about mental health and it's a popular topic for our listeners. It's probably not the first thing people think of, though, when they hear the term healthcare. What can you tell us about the relationship between our mental health and our physical health? It's a fair assumption that most people, when they talk about healthcare, are thinking about uh, diabetes, heart disease, or cancer. But what we're talking about with mental health is actually a group of disorders that cause more disability and surprisingly, more deaths as well than many forms of cancer and for many people, heart disease or diabetes. You're talking about a group of disorders that in terms of disability account for about 18% of what occurs in the United States. And now with suicide accounting for about 45,000 deaths each year, which is more than the number of deaths from breast cancer or prostate cancer. It's extraordinary. It's almost three times the number of homicides. So it's these are high numbers, and it's often surprising to people that this group of disorders, which we tend to discount because we think of them 
in the realm of psychoanalysis and kind of uh, more issues that have to do with wellness, people are surprised to hear that we're talking about a group of illnesses that create so much disability and so much mortality. And I guess the other thing to say, which separates them from the other aspects of healthcare as we think about it, is for the most part, mental illnesses are diseases of early life. They occur before age 25, about 75% of the time. So the major disorders, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, these all generally start in the late teens, early 20s, which makes them very different from heart disease, cancer, and metabolic diseases like diabetes, but which for the most part are diseases of the second half of life. The mental disorders are the chronic illnesses of the first half of life. Likewise, when we think about a healthcare system, we do think about all those physical issues and maladies that we're, we're faced with, which normally is later in life or during an acute event. How does mental health fit within the healthcare system or does it really fit within it? Is there a mental health system that exists either within or outside of what we think of normally with doctor's offices and hospitals? Walter Cronkite many, many years ago said that America's healthcare system is neither healthy, caring, nor a system. And when you think about mental health care, you can take that one step further because it's really not even a sick care system in the way that you could argue that our healthcare is a sick care system. In mental health care, we're talking about people who more than half the time at about 60% rate are outside of any form of care that we're providing in our brick and mortar system that we've built. So we're in a world in which we're talking about very prevalent illnesses. About one in five people in the United States would have a diagnosable mental illness. About one in 20 would be really truly disabled by that, what we call serious or severe mental illness. And yet almost all of these people, or at least more than half, are not in the care system. Why is that? Well, you know, there are a lot of reasons. One is that some people can't find care, can't get care. They live in areas where either there's no one available or the people available won't accept insurance or will not accept someone on, on Medicaid or Medicare. But there's a, a more complicated explanation to this lack of inclusion. And it has to do with the illnesses themselves, that when people are depressed, uh, they're hopeless. When people are psychotic, they may not feel like they have an illness. And often uh, the illnesses themselves preempt their own treatment. It's really surprising. And again, something that separates these illnesses from other medical problems is that these come with a whole set of issues that often keep people out of care. And of course, then there's some stigma around getting care as well, which in some cases is actually worse than the stigma of having the disorder. So there's so many things that keep people from being in even the dysfunctional system that we have. No question that when they do get care, it's often very late in the game. It's usually when there's a crisis. And it's often episodic, which means they get the crisis taken care of, often with hospitalization or medication. But there's very little follow-on. There's no real connectivity. It's not like anybody really owns the patient in the way that we usually see with diabetes 
where there's some continuity and there's a care plan and there's a combination of medication and lifestyle changes. Unfortunately, in this area, we don't see that so much. And so the quality of care is not great. Is part of the problem that the way that mental health issues are even diagnosed is a very difficult thing compared to diagnosing physical health issues? Well, there are no biomarkers for uh, mental disorders, which is a real problem. Yeah, I guess what I'm trying to get to is that it's very subjective analysis that professionals need to go by. Well, that's true in other areas of medicine as well. We don't have great biomarkers for migraine, and mm. there are a range of areas where we're struggling in medicine to do better on the diagnostic side. But in mental health care, it's across the board. We really are in this case, left to um, clinical judgment, which is important and certainly worthwhile. But it's hard because you're talking about clinical judgment that depends largely on what people report to you. And we know that when people are depressed, for instance, or when they're psychotic, they may not be the very best at describing their own experience. Um, people who are depressed really see the world as a glass half uh, empty. And the bias they have may really prevent them from giving a very clear picture of everything they're going through, whether it's their sleep patterns or their appetite or any of that. That's why most clinicians will use um, a family member as well to get a good history. So it's, it is a problem that we don't have a a way of getting at the diagnostic categories with objective measures that are quantifiable and that look more like the hemoglobin A1C or, or even measuring body temperature in infectious disease. We do have a system which is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, DSM, that I think people are quite familiar with. It's again, imperfect. It's useful for providing a common language. So it serves as a kind of dictionary for the field. Unfortunately, I think many people have used it as an encyclopedia, assuming that it's giving us the reality of the, you know, a kind of the real picture of what these disorders are. It, it certainly isn't. Uh, we know that there are many, many forms of depression and DSM can't do better than to clump them together by describing the set of symptoms that one's likely to see. It's a little bit like saying, we're gonna find ways to classify uh, heart disease by the kind of pain that you have. And you certainly would wanna know about the pain, but you wouldn't stop there. You'd wanna uh, add in a, a series of objective measures to get a more precise definition. So you'd know what treatment would be most likely to succeed. Is that where technology really holds a lot of promise for mental health, to be able to add that additional layer of analysis, even outside of an interaction with a professional? We hope so. It's still early days on this, but the hope is that uh, we can use technology in a variety of ways to get more objective information, not so much in the office setting, because that is, I think everyone would agree, an artificial place to be able to assess how somebody's functioning. But doing this more ecologically, whether that means using wearable technology to monitor someone's sleep patterns or uh, using smartphone technology to identify um, how somebody's feeling and how they're thinking, uh, all of those issues. Years ago, I used to joke that the best biomarker that we had for mania was someone's credit card report because 
as people become manic, they begin spending money uh, in a way that's really um, disinhibited and <laughs> uncontrolled. And so you see that, and um, people understand that about themselves. So this is really kind of the same concept. It's measuring how somebody's functioning, but doing it for better or for worse where they live, which is on their phone. Increasingly, that's how people are functioning is through what they say, what they type, what they search for. The world in which uh, they interact is through their keyboard. And so we're looking at a possibility of finding keyboard signals that are valid and useful, clinically useful, for helping um, manage depression, psychosis, mania, a whole range of psychiatric problems. We're speaking with Dr. Thomas Insel. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll dive into the work that Tom and his team at MindStrong Health are doing. We'll learn how they're creating digital phenotypes to understand how someone is thinking, feeling, or behaving. We'll do that right after a word from one of our sponsors. Don't go away. Welcome back. We're with our guest, Dr. Thomas Insel, the co-founder and president of MindStrong Health. Tom, let's jump right into the work that you're doing, and let's start off with an understanding of digital phenotypes. What is a digital phenotype, and how is it used? It's a clever name, isn't it? I can't take credit for that. Uh, The name has been around for a couple of years as a way to describe uh, the use of digital data from either a wearable device or a smartphone to understand how someone's thinking, feeling, behaving, and phenotyping being the flip side of genotyping. That's where the word comes from. And so originally we were interested in understanding phenotypes, which means kind of physical manifestations that would correlate with anyone's particular DNA sequence, their genotype. Uh, this is less about physical and more about behavioral or cognitive correlates. And doesn't even have to correlate with genetics. It's really now just a descriptor of the behavior. So the phenotype, the digital phenotype is using those signals to understand how somebody's functioning, how they're doing in the real world. And what people have done mostly is to focus on three channels from the smartphone that are pretty interesting. One being the sensors on the phone, looking at activity or location information, or even uh, information like sort of metadata. You can get some sense of someone's social connectedness by the number of calls out versus calls in, the number of texts out versus texts ends. It's not a perfect measure, but it's a measure of sociality, which is probably better than just asking someone the question of how connected they are. The second channel is uh, voice and speech. Now, people don't speak on their phones nearly as much as they used to. We call these smartphones, but they actually are used for a lot of other things more than they're used for talking to someone. But there is the opportunity to monitor and to measure how speech and voice change in the early phases of Parkinson's disease or with MS or even in depression and potentially in schizophrenia. There's a lot of interest in studying aspects of speech like um, coherence or just the speed of speech. Or we know that when people become depressed, their pronouns change from we, they, you, to I, I, I. It's, that's been known for 40 years, but now we have a way with natural language processing to capture that in real time and to turn that into something that looks more like a biomarker of depression. MindStrong Health is doing something a little different. We're on a third channel, and it's a channel that came out of cybersecurity. 
Our founder, Paul Dagum, had been in the cybersecurity industry trying to track hackers, and he discovered that hackers, wherever they are and whatever address they're using, they, they leave a digital fingerprint by the way they type, the way they scroll, the way they click. And he became intrigued by this fingerprint as a potential forensic tool, and that indeed is what it became. It was used to track hackers globally and brought several to trial on this basis. Paul's company was ultimately sold, and he, being a physician in an earlier part of his career, thought about whether he could take the same technology into healthcare. And he began to study people who would be tested with neuropsychological gold standard measures like looking at executive function and verbal memory and IQ and all those kinds of things at Stanford University while he monitored this aspect of their typing. It's really interesting, Dan, because this is content-free. It's not collecting their words or what they type. It's just collecting how they type. Sorry to interrupt you, Tom. So I just want to be clear. So you said there were three main areas where, where you were collecting information from smartphones, right? So one was around right. the sensor data, one was around the, the voice and the connectivity data in terms of the text in versus text out and things like that. And then you, you began to talk about this third area, which is typing. Is that right? Right. So the first area is the sensors. The second is voice and speech. And the third is this, what we call it human computer interaction, or it's it's touchscreen behavior. Okay. So the, the research that was done before with Paul's first company around cybersecurity, that wasn't obviously looking at smartphones, that was looking at keystrokes on a keyboard, and then they've been able to use that same sort of technology here for smartphones? Yes, yes, so the idea is okay. you can do this on a smartphone and you can collect, because on average we touch our phones over 2,000 times a day, um, so it's a lot of data every day. And he identified about 45 different touchscreen patterns that matter, like, uh, hitting the delete key twice or going from the space bar to a character or scrolling through a contact list and hitting click and looking at the reaction times and the time series data from those activities. And he has about 23 different transforms of those data. There were over a thousand potential biomarkers of interest. And so this was done empirically, collecting a lot of data and then with machine learning saying, okay, can we train up the algorithm? based on someone's uh, score on a test of executive function? Can we find those features that map onto that? And so he was able to do that training set and then to actually validate in additional studies and come up with a set of pretty good descriptors from the keystrokes alone that could serve as a predictor of someone's cognitive score, as well as later in a study that we're just getting ready to submit for publication, their mood scores in a study of depression, patients with depression who were being treated with a rapid-acting antidepressant ketamine. We were able to look at these keystroke patterns and identify features associated with recovery and relapse. So this is a third channel, which I think is really intriguing. It hasn't been developed nearly as much, or there haven't been as many people studying this as speech and voice, which has been around for about 30 or 40 years, or even the idea of looking at sensors, which is in some ways a lot more obvious. But these three channels together create this interesting potential for this digital phenotype, or you could say digital biomarkers. I think that's amazing because when you begin to think about all the different 
ways that we can connect data. I mean, you mentioned earlier in the conversation around spending patterns when, when people are manic that their credit card data, could, you, you said you joked about it, but certainly you can see patterns in that. So if you can look at spending data, all the sensors that are in the phone, the location information, the orientation, the movement, uh, the accelerometer, and now combine it with the things that you talked about with voice and being able to detect. We had um, Yuval Moore uh, come on from Beyond Verbal last year, and he was talking about some of the work that they were doing to be able to both detect mood, but also to actually diagnose physical conditions as well through intonations and changes in people's voice. And then you layer in this additional level of analysis of the typing, it really becomes a very powerful cocktail to be able to assess a lot of information. I mean, imagine you could also listen to background noise and environment. And this is a very powerful tool for tracking and hopefully monitoring and improving people's mental health, right? Well, right. So we're going from a field in which we had no biomarkers and no objective measures of behavior to suddenly having the potential to do this uh, in a very inexpensive way. And of course, we're talking about a technology in the smartphone that's global. There are 3 billion smartphones in use today. So in a field for which access has been a major problem, as well as the absence of measurement, both of those things could be addressed with the same incredible computer that we all carry around in our pockets. Now, I want to emphasize that there's still a lot of work to do here. And this turns out to be much more difficult than it sounds. For instance, people, when they become severely depressed, stop using their phones sometimes. Not always. I mean, we've discovered in the study that we're just getting ready to publish that, in fact, we were able to get pretty good data on most days for people who were even severely depressed. But that's still an issue that we have to be thinking about. There's some people who uh, may not have access to a phone, although that's less and less the case. It's still important to recognize the potential of a digital divide that not everybody might be able to participate in such a world. And it's also clear that there's still a lot for us to learn about what signals might actually be useful and which ones are simply noise. So I like to say this is probably act one of a five-act play, and we've got much more to learn. I should also add that in some ways, the most obvious and maybe the most informative kinds of information would be coming not through the three channels I mentioned, but a fourth channel, which we sometimes call the digital exhaust. So that would be your social media posts, uh, your Google searches or any kind of search, maybe information from a digital assistant. That's pretty creepy. And most people have told us that that's a bridge too far, that they're not comfortable with sharing that kind of data. But I think there's no question that if you wanted to look at how somebody's feeling about the world and what kinds of things they're really preoccupied with, that's a pretty good indication. And for people who are suicidal, it may be that there's information in that kind of digital exhaust that really could save lives, that could give us that just-in-time information and the opportunity for a just-in-time intervention. I think we have to really grapple with the possibility that while that could be done, it's also too close to that sense of surveillance or intrusiveness that most people are not going to be comfortable with. But maybe for some people, that is the difference between life and death, and it is something that we need to be thinking about. 
I think these are all tough, important questions about social values, about public trust. There are issues we're going to have to sort out over the next three or four years. The critical piece, though, is to recognize that we're in a different world here, and we're in a world where the technology has given us the opportunity, I think for the first time, to turn this mental health space into a place where we can get deep ecological objective information that does allow us to do better measurement and I think better management of these very disabling deadly illnesses. And I think that's hopeful, but we've got a long way to go to make this really work in the way all of us want it to. Yep. I guess one of the key points about what you just said there is that a lot of this data is passive. So it's not really requiring that a person you know take pictures of their food or charge up their tracker or where that this is information that can be assessed from their normal usage of their phones. Of course, there are some issues where they might stop using their phones, but broadly, you can pick up this information. You mentioned that this was one or the first act of a five-part play. What else needs to happen to make this sort of technology available and applied in our current mental health care system? That's a great question, and it's something we think about all the time, is how do you go from this as a research tool to a clinical tool? And there are a couple of issues there that we'll have to grapple with. One is I think we really will have to understand the value of what we've got. What works? What are the signals that matter? And what's the sensitivity and specificity of those signals? And are they going to meet the standards of a clinically actionable biomarker the way hemoglobin A1C would be or the way your blood pressure would be? I think that work is in progress. Honestly, it may turn out that it's going to take all three channels and maybe even a little bit of a fourth channel to be able to do this really well. And the field isn't there yet. The field is mostly made up of either academics or startup companies that are looking at one of those signals and trying to go deep on that and to understand how far each of those signals will take us. That's great, but I do think eventually much of this will have to come together to create the kind of digital phenotype that would be clinically useful and that can really predict and prevent relapse, which is what we're talking about. That's about half of what we need. I think the second half is going to be the demonstration that the public really can trust this kind of an approach. For a lot of people, even in the way I've described it here, it sounds like surveillance. And maybe they wouldn't mind that in terms of a cancer diagnosis or in terms of a diagnosis that has to do with heart disease. But for whatever reason, this has become a difficult bridge for a lot of people who feel that this kind of monitoring is sort of spying on how they feel and how they think. And they worry, for instance, uh, will my employer have access to these data? Will there be legal implications? If this is being done in a healthcare environment, could this be used by an insurance company to prevent me from getting the kind of coverage that I'm looking for? So there are a lot of concerns. We had this, by the way, in the early days of the Human Genome Project as well. So at MindStrong Health, we're pretty interested in trying to figure out how to face some of the ethical, legal, social issues. Early on, we brought together experts in this. We've been working with the 
Stanford Center for Bioethics as well to try to lay out some of the principles that will need to guide the development of this field. But I, I think public trust is going to be as important as proving out the clinical value if this is really going to have the impact that it could. You started MindStrong in May 2017. Where are you guys now and, and how can listeners engage with your company and engage how? Well, I should clarify, we're not a direct-to-consumer company. We work through healthcare systems. We're involved with a number of academic partnerships for the research arm of what we do. So the way that anybody could interact with this would have to be through one of those projects. For those listeners who are part of research organizations or, or commercial organizations, what sorts of things are you interested in doing or what sorts of projects are you interested in getting involved with and how can people get in touch with you? Well, the mission we have is to improve outcomes, really reduce disability, reduce mortality. So we're looking for projects where we have the opportunity to find the signals and to prove out the value of this approach for reducing pre-hospitalization, reducing crisis care in through emergency rooms. One way to think about this is that we're trying to build a digital smoke alarm and using that as an early detection tool so that we can intervene earlier. The kinds of partners that we're looking for are partners who share that interest and who are trying to find a way to get better outcomes for people with serious mental illness. We have a couple of projects with pharmaceutical companies, mostly in terms of using this as an outcome variable in studies of either depression or schizophrenia. We have also have uh, projects in the, oddly enough, in the public mental health care system because we wanted to get real-world evidence for how this would play out in patients on Medicaid or Medicare, patients who might not have all the advantages of what we'd see in a clinic at Stanford. So we're um, working with several counties in California to co-develop with them. They, these are counties that are funded to do uh, innovation projects through the state mental health system. And so they're working with us on what's called the Innovation Fund to actually not just test what we built, but to build out uh, products that can work in the public system. And we're also in conversations with large healthcare systems about developing this, as well as working with one large employer to create this as a uh, employee benefit. Where do you think this is going to go in the next five to 15 years? How do you think the mental health environment will change and how important of a role will technology play in that in those changes? I think that measurement over the next five years will be an important uh, new component in mental health care in the way that measurement has changed so many areas of medicine to give us higher quality care. I think we'll see that here, and I think by having better measurement, we'll have better management of diseases. These are chronic diseases, and that could shift us away from this episodic, crisis-driven form of care by giving us earlier signals. But it is really important to understand that measurement is just the first step, that you have to close the loop by having interventions that are tied to that. And it's great to detect. It's great to have a smoke alarm. But you also have to be prepared to put out the fire. And we have to figure that out. We have to figure out what kinds of interventions, some that will be online, some that will be offline, can make a real impact on reducing suicide and reducing disability. 
that's really the task of the next five years is tying the digital phenotyping to the digital interventions and doing that both at the level of individual patients, but also individual practices. So creating tools that make the practice of mental health care far more effective and more efficient. There are ways to do that through dashboards, through better communication, through measuring quality. All of those things are utterly possible. And I think in some ways easier than the phenotyping, but they still need to be done and they need to be stitched together with the phenotyping. So we truly have a a measurement-based care system, a closed loop that has both the detection of problems and and a platform for just-in-time interventions. It's an exciting time to work in mental health, and I really applaud your work that you're doing there at MindStrong Health. Listeners can visit mindstronghealth.com to find out more about your company and your work. I also see you've got a Facebook page and a LinkedIn profile here that we can include in the show notes for this episode. And listeners can also email info at mindstronghealth.com. Any other good ways for people to find out more about your company and, and keep in touch? I think those are great suggestions, Dan, and just delighted to have a chance to talk a little bit about this. That was Dr. Thomas R. Insel, the co-founder and president of MindStrong Health. If you want to read more about what they're doing, visit our website. We've linked to an article that Tom published recently, as well as some other resources you might find helpful. Get on over to digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 82. You know, I always love to hear what you think, and I'd love to hear what you think about this episode. Hit me up on Twitter at HealthTechDan, and be sure to follow the show at DHealthToday. We have more great guests coming up for you this season, so stay tuned for episode 83. And until next time, keep on innovating.